Uh, hey, Mike. Hey. No, what's new? I feel like we just uh, did this. Yeah, I don't know. It, you know, our our reader mail or our listener mails really dropped off lately. I don't know if people are like enjoying the new episodes or what, but uh, it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. So this is episode one hundred and twelve. Um, oh we forgot to post a bunch of them so yeah we're just gonna retape all of them yeah exactly first things first what are you doing for christmas (laughs) um i'm really excited i hope that uh amazon comes out with a phone this year and no so uh why haven't we recorded a podcast in more than six months mike um, medical induced coma. <laughs> no, uh, self-induced coma. So, I self, don't even remember why it happened. Self-induced. I think we got busy and then we got lazy. Um, in I think that we order. got lazy first, didn't we? Well, I feel like uh, right around the time we stopped recording, we sort of went into crunch mode on edit ready. Okay. Uh, and then we had NAB, and then we uh-huh. kept crunching on edit ready. And then, mm. um, then it was summer and, you know, I had to get my tan on. Oh uh, yeah, I guess we haven't done, we've been pretty busy even for the last month, but yeah. Um, so first things first, uh, the last time we recorded a podcast, we were working on an app that we weren't talking about. Um, that has since become an app that we are trying, trying, trying to talk hard about. to talk about. Uh, it's called edit ready. Yes. Hey, Mike, what's Edit Ready? Edit Ready is um, it's our new transcoding tool. So a lot of people are probably familiar with ClipRap, which is our M2T and MTS to QuickTime Movie Converter. We made the somewhat confusing-sounding MOV to MOV Converter now, which is essentially it's a shim for the front of your production workflow and it's for getting all of your miscellaneous camera formats into edit so we're targeting things that shoot to QuickTime. so dslrs iphones gopros um, alexa black magic um, some field recorders a number of different things and we'll give you a quick way to take that all that disparate footage and get it into a common format. Um, we have a bunch of cool stuff for metadata editing. We've got some cool stuff for previewing. Um, we can bake in LUTs. We can make proxy media. Yeah, that's is that pretty much what it is. It sounds it sounds pretty good to me. Um, and I guess the the big thing is that we're. We spent all this time uh, that we weren't podcasting making it really fast. Yes. And I think that's part of what we might talk about today um, in keeping with the theme of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Back when we had a theme, uh, which is sort of development-y, video-y stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done a blog post to this effect, but I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit more about why Edit Ready is so much faster than everyone else. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of different factors here. Um, do you want to right. break I mean, one of the big mistakes that the other apps do is they convert every single frame of your video. <laughs> we just do every sixth frame, which we find is just about six times faster. Yeah. Also, they have, they all made the mistake of um, writing their apps before 2014. 
Which, That's true. Big mistake. Probably the bigger thing. Yeah. Um, All those suckers taking your money for years when they could have waited like us. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, so there's a, you know, a bunch of stuff has changed recently in video, and in, you know, sort of the consumer hardware market at large. And so Edit Ready, you know, is because it's brand new, we're able to take advantage of some of those things. So the two big things that I see um, that, you know, we sort of jumped on with the release of this app is all of these cameras that are coming out. Most of the cameras I named, most consumer cameras for sure, are shooting to a standard codec now, which is... um, H.264, which is, you know, the same format that ABC-HD is recording to. It's it's been around for a long time. It comes in different wrappers, different flavors, but it's like universal standard. Um, Lots of people are recording to it. And then on the consumer side, it's a really great deployment format, too. So, you know, YouTube videos are all encoded H.264, Vimeo videos, um, you know, most, anytime you're, you know, watching a cat video on the internet, if it's not a GIF, it's probably an H.264 video. Yeah. And because of that, because of that, like, cross-industry standardization, people like Intel have started to say, well, you know, we should make this really easy to do. Um, you know, all the videos on the internet are in H.264. That's probably, you know, a not insignificant amount of processing that our computers are doing across the globe every day. What if we, you know, actually roll out silicon in these chips that do H.264 decode? And so, you know, most of the modern Macs out there now have an Intel chipset that supports decoding of H.264 right on the chip. Um, This was something that I think was started with the iPhones. I mean, they were the first ones to do hardware decode because they were worried about battery life. But, you know, but that technology seems to have sort of trickled back to the Mac and to the Intel chipsets. Yeah, it's um, it's a oddly named technology. If you're curious, called QuickSync. I I don't really understand why it's called that. Um, and in yeah, its its newest incarnations in the um, since well since Ivy Bridge and especially in the Haswell chips, um, it does encode and decode. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a very meaningful speed boost, um, but you have to sort of have your application designed to take advantage of it. Um, and, you know, luckily, because we were starting from now, we were able to add that support in right from the beginning. Yeah, so, I mean, that I think is by far the largest speed increase we have over anyone else. Um, I think we're the only people using this at this point, right? Um yeah, I mean, I don't know of anyone else, at least in terms of performance numbers. No one else is close to us. So I've got yeah, to I mean, there have been there have been solutions like this in the past. Like Matrox has a standalone card, which did hardware decode. And Elgato. And, 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 yeah, yeah, Elgato had one. Um, but I think we're the first people to actually use the one that you already bought. <laughs> and, 
it's it's a twofold boost for you. Um, one is that it's you know freeing up your main CPU or you know using less CPU time and therefore saving you battery life and everything else. But um, it's also you know much faster. And so it's not only that you're not running your CPU for that ten seconds, but um, you're actually doing the work in like more than the time it would take your or less than the time it would take your CPU to do it. And so we can use that CPU time to do other stuff like the ProRes encode that you're doing on the other side. Right. And the the beauty of the asymmetry of these codecs is that H.264 takes more time to decode on CPU than ProRes takes to encode on CPU. So if you move the H.264 decode to something that's faster, your ProRes encoder isn't sitting around waiting for frames. So everything just sort of like slotted in just perfectly. Yeah, it's uh, pretty sweet. I think the other thing, one of the things that I'm most interested about uh, in terms of Edit Ready's performance is the impact or lack of impact um, by a technology called hyperthreading. Because if you are someone who likes to watch Activity Monitor when you're doing transcoding, um, you'll see this sort of wide range of utilization of your computer. On my uh, desktop machine, which is a 2013 MacBook Pro Retina, it's a Core i7 machine with four cores, and then it has something called hyper-threading. And what that means is that when I'm doing an encode with Handbrake, for example, um, I will see an activity monitor at a utilization number of 800%, something like that. Um, what I'm doing a transcode and edit ready, I only see a utilization number of say 400%. And so your first reaction would be, wow, you know, edit ready is only using half the resources on my computer. Um, but that's not really true, is it? Yeah. Um, do you want to explain exactly what hyperthreading does? Um, or do you want me to do that? You, you know, we can both give it a go and hopefully come up with something somewhat close to reality. Okay, every other word. Okay. Uh, it doesn't use. <laughs> um, okay, this isn't going to work. No. Um, so the idea with hyperthreading is that big chunks of the time that you're doing work on your uh, computer, your processor is actually waiting for data to come in from your memory, um, like system RAM, uh, which is slow. Or even caches. Everything everything except registers is slow. Um, And so most things your computer does is it takes two numbers and, like, adds them together. And you would think that the adding would be the slow part, but really the part of that sentence that's tough for computers to do is take two numbers. Um, And so, you know, most of the time in any of these complex computations, it's getting the two numbers loaded up and ready to look at and then you do the math which is you know instantaneous it's one cycle and then you have to take that result and put it somewhere Um, and so in you know in a perfect like computational thing you're just like taking two numbers and like adding them repeatedly and that's what computers can do really really fast it's the the load they're called loads and stores and those are the things that you know are like they can be orders of magnitude slower than the actual oper- all the other operations that chips can do 
And so what hyperthreading does is basically while it's waiting for one of those loads or stores to finish, it just sort of cables the whole operation, lets the load store continue in the background, and switches to a second set of work to see if there's something ready to do. And this is happening, you know, uh, millions, billions of times a second and sort of at a very, very small unit of work. It isn't like I'm going to work on this frame. Now I'm going to work on this frame. No, no. It's like I'm going to add these two numbers and then, oh, I don't have the numbers yet. Oh, this, okay, I got these other two numbers I can add right now. And And it's confusing because there's, there's two different levels the chip does that at. It does what's called pipeline optimizations, where it actually will move around the math so that the math, you know, sometimes it can do math in the same thread that, I don't know how we want to explain this. So, so yeah, so when you, when you set up, when you run a regular program and you, it run, you know, it's compiled and sent to the CPU to run, you can think of it as like an a, you know a recipe, a set of operations, and what what a modern CPU will do by default, you know, even without hyperthreading, is it will you know if you think of it as like I'm baking a cake, what it does is it will like you know say the first two things are do you know mix this and this, and then the next two steps are mix this and this, and then the next step is like let this chill. And so what it will do is it will actually pick and choose all of those things that it has to do between the beginning of starting to make a cake and the I'm done making a cake. And it will do things like, you know, it will go, oh, I realize that all these things are making the cake before it goes in the oven. And then there's all these other things about making the frosting. Well, I'm going to get the cake in the oven so that while the cake is cooking, which takes a long time, I can make the frosting. You know, and it will do that independent of how you've actually structured your program. You know, the chips, an Intel processor will do that. Part of its processing is actually, you know, part of the the giant pile of transistors that are sitting there on that chip are just running this, this different program, you can think of it as, which is just changing your program on the fly. And that works really well in some cases, and right. not so well in others. Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's a, so if we, you know, if we stick with this recipe metaphor, you know, you can move stuff around some, but you still have the cake in the oven for 45 minutes or whatever it is. I don't know how long cakes take. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah. And so like, you can't be like, okay, well, we're going to optimize this. And so we'll do the cake and we'll do the frosting and the frosting's done after two minutes. So cake's done. We'll just take the cake out of the oven. Done. And so what, what hyperthreading does is it says, okay, you're making two cakes. Great. Well, I'll make the first cake. I'll stick it in the oven. I'll make the frosting. Okay, I'm still waiting on that first cake. I'll make the second cake. I'll put it in the oven. And then I'll, you know, make the frosting. I'll check to see if the first cake is done. It's not done. Okay, do we have a third cake we need to make? And you, so it just, you know, it like staggers your operations such that they all... Whenever it's waiting on something, it checks to see if there's something else it can be doing. And 
so you'll notice that you know some applications can really take advantage of this and some can't um but in reality that what that means is that you know those applications that you see using 800% cpu are probably doing a lot of waiting right because I of mean, the way it gets reported in activity monitor i should say yeah so your your chip is still a finite resource it can only do so hyperthreading is it can do two cakes at once um you know, there's not an opportunity to do more beyond that. So, you know, the system is limited to the... So if you have four cores, it what it does is it exposes eight cores to your computer. And then if you schedule stuff on all eight cores, it sort of it just juggles them um, in order to give you this, you know, what is, you know, at most double the concurrency. Um. And so, one, some, some applications, you know, choose to schedule eight things to do on a computer like yours. Some choose to only schedule four. Um, and there are, there are cases where both are the right thing to do. Because if you're not waiting around on the processor a lot, the, the contract is such that when you say, I'm doing these eight things, I need you to run them all. It's still going to run them all. Whether or not it has free time to do it, it's just going to start switching between things. Um, and so, you know, all you're doing then is actually causing the chip to switch to something that it doesn't have free time to do. And in the process of doing that, it has to actually take the other stuff and set it aside. And there's, there is a cost to doing that. Um, you know, because if you have four things going on a machine, they can all load up cache space, they can fill buffers, they can have all this stuff, you know, as close to the CPU as possible. And, you know, you may not have enough room in your, you know, your L1 cache to load up twice as much work, in which case now you have eight things which are trying to do stuff, only six of which have local cached data and so the other ones are now like asking for data and the chip goes oh i don't have that let me load that oh i have to throw this other stuff out and then it'll just you know thrash your cache um which you know what it does is it gives the hyper threading a great opportunity to hyper thread that <laughs> exactly so you'll so it'll use you know all 800 percent of your cpu because the, yeah so that's the thing that i don't think we've explained yet is those show up to the Mac as four more cores. So if you have a four-core i7 and it is hyper-threading, it'll show up to the computer as eight cores. And so each one of those cores has 100% of you know, usable, I don't know, whatever CPU monitor monitors. Usability. Yes, usable units. Yeah, and so... When you're actively hyper-threading on all four cores, it will show up as eight fully used cores. So you'll end up with an 800% utilization on a four-core machine. And so that's why you see that 800%. But you could have, you can just as easily have four cores that are doing, that have, that are running code that's been optimized such that it doesn't wait around for data as much. And that, might be doing more work, but it will only show up as 400%. Yeah. 
which is true, you know, I don't feel like that's an incredibly confusing thing because, you know, it's possible to write an app that does a lot of work and gets very little done. Um, in which case you'll see, you know, a lot of people will look at activity monitor and go, wow, look, I'm using 700%. That must mean I'm getting a lot done. But, you know, the point of optimizing an application is not to get the percentage up. Although, I mean, that can happen as a side effect sometimes. But really the point is to get more work done in less time. And, you know, the the best way to do that is always to find a more elegant way to do the work. You know, there's never a situation where, you know, a better algorithm isn't the best solution. Right. Unless it doesn't exist. And then you just do one of those Google Summer of Code things and get a kid to make a better algorithm. Yeah. When are we getting one of those? I don't know. We should do that. Um, so... There's, I think that I just wanted to mention quickly, there are a few other things you'll notice um, with apps that are super heavily hyper-threaded uh, because they're often thrashing memory um, on a laptop. You'll notice actually a lot more heat coming from your machine because one of the hottest parts of a laptop is not actually the CPU, but it's the uh, controller chips that are dealing with a lot of these memory operations um, and PCI bus and everything. Like, at least on my laptop, I seem to notice that when I'm really working hyper threading, I hear my fans ramp up much more and the laptop in general just gets a lot hotter, uh, which means you're burning more CPU and everything else as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in terms of edit ready, what we've done has been very careful about how we deal with memory and making sure the codecs have access to the data they need when they need it. And that we're, you know, being smart about that. Um, and And I mean, one of the things, you know, this is where the, hardware decode helps us a lot too because when you remove so in a normal transcode application you have encode and decode happening at roughly the same time on the same hardware and so those two things need entirely different data and they need different you know they're running different parts of the program they're loading different stuff into cache and so in, a, in an ideal world, the way that you'd encode a file is you'd decode the entire file and then re-encode the entire file. But, you know, the nature of video is such that you can't take, you know, what starts as a 4-gig file, decode it into, you know, 70-gig, keep it in RAM, and then re-encode it. So, but you can basically obviate the entire problem by just not doing all the work on the CPU. Right. And so we get most of the benefits of that with none of the drawbacks. And I'll take that. (laughs) Um, What else are we doing in edit ready? I mean, um, hyper threading is one thing. um, Using the encoders is one thing. Um, I think one of the other things we've done that I haven't seen other people doing in quite the way we have is the way we use the GPU. Um, which yeah, I mean, this is something I think other people are doing, but most, I'm not in the transcode business. I mean, this is something, you know, so we have a 
OpenCL pipeline, which you know is is an op, is a system for executing code on your GPU. And GPUs were designed for moving lots and lots of pixels around, and so they are you know hyper optimized for the sort of operations where every pixel gets touched once or every pixel gets touched a few times. Um, and so, you know, the place where that becomes an obvious win for us is doing things like color space changes. You know, when you're changing from YUV to RGB, um, every pixel gets red once, you know, you do a fairly, you know, a non-insignificant amount of matrix math to move stuff around and then you write it back out once. And so GPUs are, you know, they can do that all day. Um, and so we've moved that sort of um, that section of our pipeline to the GPU. And this is, you know, this is exactly what, you know, Adobe's Mercury engine does for these sort of things. That's what Final Cut X does for their playback pipeline. It's what Resolve does for their playback pipeline. But I don't think most transcode apps are bothering to do that. Well, and I think it's important to draw the distinction because I've seen some confusion um, just in talking to people between doing this sorts of color work on the GPU versus actually doing transcoding on the GPU. Yeah. Um, Because they're definitely not the same thing and GPUs aren't necessarily as suited to transcoding. Right. So, yeah. So people, I mean, a lot of people say GPUs are really fast. We should put everything on the GPU. Um, But GPUs are only, I mean, they're, yes, they're fast in the sense that they can do a lot of work quickly. Um, They're only able to do that if they can do a lot of work at the same time. And transcoding, you know, encode and decode for the most part, at least the codecs we're talking about right now is a lot of sequential operations. And those, you know, when you look at the clock speed of a GPU, it's relatively low. So the amount of work it can do on a single core, if you want to call it that, um, is much less than a CPU. I mean, a CPU can do more you know, more operations on a single piece of data in a second. But a GPU can do fewer operations on a lot more data. Um, The problem is they have to be small pieces of data. um, And you have to have, you know, at least tens of thousands of them in order to reap the real benefits. And so pixel level is great because, you know, everyone's got a million pixels always stick on a GPU. I mean, you know, we go through billions of pixels transcoding files right. in, a, in a standard batch. And so doing one operation on every one of those is great for GPU. Frames, you know, it would be a natural place that, you know, so you can't do, can't do pixels for transcodes because they depend on all the ones around them and they depend on a bunch of other things. So you can't do that. You could maybe do frames, but there aren't even enough frames in most files. Plus, you add in the fact that like every core on a GPU, they're called uh, ALUs, arithmetic logic units. Sounds right. 
something like that. I don't know. Um, you know, they can get like, you know, it's less than, it's significantly less than a K of RAM, you know, right. per AOU. I think it's like a couple bytes. Um, and so you can't throw a frame in each one of those. So you don't really have a good level at which to discretize, to break up your data, to throw on the GPU. Um, which is fine because, I mean, you know, the real big win we have here with EditReady is we have lots of things running at once, you know. And I, I just wanted to draw one more distinction, I think, is that the people who have done um, the GPU-based encode, decode, I think, end up basically mirroring what Intel's done with QuickSync in terms of the types of operations they optimize. It's not doing the entire transcode. It's taking a few bits of math that can be optimized for the GPU and doing them that way. Right. Yeah, you can do that some. Um, but like with H.264, there's not a lot of stuff you can heavily parallelize. And so... Yeah. And with other formats like ProRes, you know, going from an uncompressed frame into ProRes, you're dealing with such big hunks of data. I think you would, any performance gains you'd get from doing it on the GPU, you'd lose by pushing a frame to the GPU and pulling it back. And, you know, well, not, I mean, I think the other big problem, I mean, we don't, I haven't, you know, in theory, we don't know how ProRes works. We do because it's been reverse engineered, but I haven't spent all that much time looking at it. But what I know about it is it's similar to VC3, which is DNxHDs, and a not insignificant amount of that compression is looking up values in a table. Yeah, it definitely is. And those are not what GPUs are fast at. They're actually really slow at that sort of thing. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think... You know, CPUs are great at that sort of thing. And so I think it just ends up being, you know, just not the kind of thing that GPUs are good at. And people have, you know, in the past, there's been a lot of research into how to make a codec that a GPU would be good at. Um, But I think the sort of common wisdom at this point is it doesn't matter because we have chips that are good at decoding. Like we don't need another codec. We have a codec and we've designed silicone to make it fast and they cost, you know, 30 cents a unit or something to stick one of these things in your phone. So there's very little reason to try to move it to a less special purpose. Right. Chunk of silicone. Now I have a question to sort of branch off from here. Um, A couple weeks ago, we saw an announcement from Intel that they're going to start putting uh, FPGAs on their Xeon chips. I think they're working with Zillinix or one of the people. Yeah, they are. Um, Do you think that's ever something that would either on the desktop or in mobile be, you know, worth propagating out? And do you see a path where, you know, an FPGA on your chip becomes another addressable piece of compute? Well, okay, so there's a few things. Um, first, we should explain what FPGAs are. They're field programmable gate arrays. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, so basically they're like, um, you know, the way that you make a chip, like, a, you know, say you sit down to design one of these um, 
H.264 decoder chips we've been talking about for the last, I don't know, 20 minutes. Um, you know, you sit down essentially in a CAD program or something, and you draw out where all the transistors go and how they're connected. Uh, what a, And then you send it off, and they, like, burn it into a piece of silicone. I don't even know how they do it, like lasers or something. X-ray uh, lithography. Yeah, so they they like etch it into the thing, and then they add more layers, and they do this, and you end up with a bunch of little traces going between transistors. And you know it's great, but you know it's not an insignificant process to do that. What a field programmable gate array is is it's just a giant pile of transistors with little traces between them and another set of transistors that can decide which traces connect to what. They're like just little, it's like a matrix of transistors with little switches that you can use. And then so you sit down in a similar CAD program, at least this is how it used to be, and you draw up the circuit you want and you hit compile and it would like, and it would create a file, it would send it to the FPGA, and the FPGA would switch all the little switches, and then you'd have that circuit. And so every time that FPGA booted up, it would boot up into this little circuit, and you could, you know, have a, you know, the, the energy characteristics and the heat characteristics are not as good as a custom, you know, etched piece of silicone, but, you know, the speed wasn't too much different. And so you could have these like custom tailored pieces of silicone that did exactly the task you needed, but they're reprogrammable. Yeah. And this is, um, we've talked about these before a little bit because we've talked about the way Blackmagic uses these across the board and how that, you know, that's really one of the key factors that let them drive costs down. Yeah. And this is like, this is the only way you can handle HDSDI video, like, this, anything that has an HDSDI port on the back of it, it's connected to a field programmable gate array because it's the only thing that can handle that much bandwidth at a small enough... I mean, nothing's been invented yet that ships in enough units that you would actually design custom HDSDI silicone for. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's also, you know, we're, we run into them just all the time in our day-to-day lives now. Um, a lot of times when you're um, seeing hardware, you know, doing firmware updates and things, what's actually happening is you're reprogramming FPGAs. Exactly. And this is because, I mean, they used to be expensive and they used to be fairly niche and they used to be, you know, you used to have to sit down with a CAD program and design these chips, which meant you had to have someone who could design chips. But... You know, in the last 10 years, they've gotten it to the point where you just write a program and it converts the program into the schematic for the chip and then fires it off to the thing. And because it's gotten so much easier to design the programs that run on these things, it's gotten, you know, the numbers of these in shipping units have gone just through the roof and the volume costs have come down and, you know, now, you know, a really nice FPGA, like the one that you would have in, you know, the Blackmagic Ultra Studio 4K, is probably, I mean, if you buy them one at a time, the unit costs are under 50 bucks. You know, if you're buying them by the truckload, they're like, I probably in the 20s. Yeah. So they're incredibly cheap, and they're, you know... 
not and you know they're less than an order of magnitude harder to use than you know writing a program right at least a program that like runs on a gpu or something um and so yeah they're i mean they're much more accessible now and if you throw them into every computer then you know the tools are going to only get better and so at least in this iteration, Intel's doing it for the Xeon chip specifically for data center use because, mm-hmm. you know, in big compute clusters or other environments, um, much like, you know, NVIDIA's doing with their hardware, like it actually pays real dividends to have specialized compute hardware in a data center when the, you know, primary limitations on a data center nowadays are power and heat um, being right. more efficient in those regards. Well, and right. they have a giant pile of machines all doing one operation. Right. Over and over. Those are the sort of places where FPGAs get really useful because they're, you know, they're good at data in, data out. You know, they're, ba- I mean, they're really good at signal processing. Yeah. Um, and so if you can turn your issue into a signal processing issue, they're great for that. So then getting back to that question, do you think um, there's a, a future where you have some sort of FPGA in your mobile device that, or your desktop that's sort of accessible to people like us as developers? Well, here, I mean, where it gets interesting is that so the, the system we're using to execute code on the GPU now is a thing called OpenCL, which is maybe four years old now? Five yeah, years old? Five, I think. Something like that. Um, and it's it's a system for targeting code really anywhere. So you can run OpenCL kernels on your CPU. You can run them on your GPU. And one of the two big um, FPGA companies, I don't know if it's Zolinux or if it's Altara, but one of them I know has an OpenCL kernel. That's, I mean, I'm not, there's a way to get it. I'm not sure... You know, it doesn't ship like with Xcode, but they have a way to compile code directly from OpenCL C kernels into their FPGA IP. So it wouldn't be hard. I mean, at that point, it's like, you know, there's a lot of people out there who can write an OpenCL kernel. And there's already an API to do it, and it would not be hard to just flip a switch. And enable that. Yeah. I, I wonder, you know. I would I'll, love to see it happen. I don't know if it will. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there'd be issues to deal with, like contention, because um, FPGAs aren't exactly super fast at switching between configurations. No, but I mean, that's a problem with. I, I mean, it's something at a higher level that, you know, yeah. Apple would have to handle um, in terms of how they made it available or how they, you know. Whatever. You query for devices. There's no reason why a device has to be there when you query for it. Yeah. Um, it'd be really interesting. I mean, I think it would also potentially be the sort of thing, especially on mobile, um, that would, you know, allow Apple to, even if they didn't expose it to developers, to do some interesting things um, that aren't necessarily possible with a, you know, if you have to rely on your main A7 processor. Um, yeah. I mean, the problem with Apple is. I mean, I can. I think this is definitely going to happen. I'm not sure Apple is going to be the company to do it first. Sure. I just don't think it aligns with their needs or their strengths. 
you know, like, will HP have, uh, you know, a blade that does this soon? Yes. Um, will, I mean, because for, with, with Apple One, they, um, they have a really, they're not as beholden to other people's silicone. Mm-hmm. Like if they have a problem that needs to be solved with custom silicone, they don't. They can just make it. You know? Right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's a little bit more of an issue on their uh, um, laptop sign or their, you know, their desktop sign. But I mean, but I think, you know, who knows? I think for if how that ever became well. a problem, they just switch to ARM. Yeah, we've certainly heard those rumors. Hmm. Well. It's an you interesting know, I mean, only, it, may, it would make sense maybe in the new Mac Pro, but I just don't think there's enough yeah, business I mean, need there for yeah. them to actually go through the trouble of doing it. Right now, at least in terms of what's on the market right now, there aren't enough day-to-day problems that call for it. Right. Um, but I was thinking, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was um, having a sort of always listening voice recognition system. Mm-hmm. Um, or you know some of these other things that you can see, especially as we get into wearables and, and that space where computers are playing a more closely integrated role in your life, um, where you sort of want them to always be doing something. And mm-hmm. you know your iPhone is really really great at not doing anything most of the time, which is why it's right. able to stay powered for so long. I mean, and so I mean another thing to consider is Apple wouldn't have to really do any of this. In theory, I mean, if Intel has this in all of their Xenon at some point, um, like, or even if they just have them in some of them, like, all Apple would have to do is slot the chip in. Yeah. Intel's a partner on LLVM, which is, you know, the thing that's, they're the one writing the OpenCL kernel for the chip. You know, I mean, that's the other thing. They could just do a switcheroo in the background. Because right now, when you say, I have this problem, I wrote an OpenCL kernel for you, please run it on my CPU, Intel compiles it to vectorized, um, you know, x86 code. Yeah. There's nothing really in the contract, in that API contract, that stops them from being like, okay, we're running on the FPGA for you. Yep. And you've written the code such that it's vectorizable. So, I mean, I could see it happening that way. Yeah. It'd be interesting. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, anything else in terms of edit ready you're sort of excited to talk about? or? I don't know. I mean, we don't, I don't, we've got lots of stuff coming. I'm not sure we want to talk about it too much yet. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would say broadly, like one of the things that's maybe implied, but we haven't explicitly said, is that part of starting from scratch with an application, with any application, is that it makes it a lot easier to grow for a while right. until it becomes crufty and old, and then you start over. Um, and we're definitely at that point with the application where it's out the door, and now we're going back and adding lots of cool stuff. And and because it's a new application, we can iterate really quickly. Um right which is exciting and fun as a developer as well. Yeah, definitely. 
And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and we can talk about like where we see the app going in general terms, which is, you know, it's going to be the app that gets your footage into edit. So, you know, if you have footage right now that you can't get into edit, um, you should tell us because a lot of them we know and we're planning on supporting and some of them we may not know about yet. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we, I think, you know, I kind of think of it as like the developer, like the development house where you sent your film off. Like we're that step between you shot the stuff, it's on a card and it's ready to look at yeah. for screen. Yeah. Um, and especially I would say also one of, one of the uses I think users haven't really um, grasped a hold of yet, but that I'm excited about is dealing with legacy formats, which if you've moved to modern OS and modern editing pipelines, um, you know that legacy support is one of the things that's really fallen by the wayside on uh, most um, workflow sort of uh, roads, roadmaps. Mm-hmm. wherever things fall by the wayside of anyway so um there's a lot of people out there who uh either in their archives or in projects that have sort of been shelved for a little while have big hunks of apple intermediate footage or um old dv formats or old avid formats or other things that aren't going to work so well on a modern only either won't work at all in the case of a lot of these formats or certainly aren't going to be optimized and are going to cause performance issues and weird glitches and things. And so I really see edit ready as a great way to just dump all that footage in, say, make it ProRes or make it DNX and, you know, move forward that way. Yeah. Um, and so I don't really know, you know, I think that that's an area where we need to figure out how to better tell that story. Um, because I've got to imagine that's something that, you know, anybody who's been around for a few years is dealing with at this point, because if you had, you know, if you had any seats of Final Cut Express, um, you've got a whole lot of Apple Intermediate and nothing else. And yep. uh, that's not going to work so well. Yeah. So that's Edit Ready. It's been fun. Everyone seems to like the icon and um, the look. And yeah. yeah. So com slash edit ready. You should download Like it. all of our other apps. We got a trial. Try it out. It's affordable. and us f- if you don't like something. Yeah. You like something. Yeah. Tell we- your friends. Yeah. Uh, what else is going on? You did WWDC. It was apparently yeah. sort of um, mind-blowing for everyone, and, and you totally fell in love with Apple again. And uh, Yeah, it was good. I mean, they... Uh, they, you know, they they seem to be responsive right now. Yeah, um, we had new OS, new OS on both devices, new programming language, lots of new APIs, and an Apple that's more willing to talk about why they're making the decisions they're making and where they're going. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. It's uh, it's well, good. Let me ask you, as a um, you're a longer time apple user than i am uh one is this a cycle that you've seen repeated in the past or is this really new behavior from apple the stuff we're seeing now and two um is it exclusively positive or do you see any sort of countervailing force um hmm i mean i don't i can't remember a time when apple was incredibly open i mean maybe in the dark years between jobs 
Yeah, it's probably hard to say because we didn't have the means for being open in the way we do now. Right. I mean, they were open in the sense that, like, they did the clones, they did the stuff. Um, they tried a lot more stuff and let it sort of fail. Um, I mean, and we won't know for a while whether or not any of this is similar. Um, you know, Swift may be the new garbage collection. That is always a possibility. Um, you know, Apple invents these things or, you know, adopts them from the industry at large, always their own way. And then um, either they gain traction or they don't. Um, Swift seems like it will gain traction. Um, I um, mean, they have a lot of power in making it gain traction because they can say, yeah, you can't, you know, build new apps with. Right, but they could have done that with garbage collection too. But the problem is no one bought into it in the company even. Yeah. You know, and we saw Swift come out and everyone seems really excited, but no one in Apple knew about Swift. True. So, I mean, they they announced a new programming language and every single piece of API they announced was for the old programming language. (laughs) Because none of them knew there was a new language to target. Yeah. Um, And so, you know... A year from now, when they're showing, you know... Tenderloin? Yeah. Oh, that'd be a great language. I would totally... I would love OSX Tenderloin. Um, when they... Yeah, I mean, if they start rolling out Swift-only API in here, then, then we'll know which way we're going. Yeah. But until they do that, I'm not sure... Um, And the problem is a lot of this stuff, you know, I'm not sure. See, this is, I start to run into troubles because I'm not a computer programmer. Uh, I mean, not in like the, like I I don't understand Swift yet. And, um, you know, it was designed by people who have taken a fair amount of comp sci courses within the recent history. Right. It's one of these languages like... Go or something else that's yeah, designed that, by people who know how you make a good language. Well, ostensibly an academic language, right. not a, you know, I mean, there has not been, you know, I mean, I guess Python and Ruby would be the two exceptions to the, to the notion that there's been a new language in, you know, the last 20 years that people use for things. Um, you know, I mean, like everything is still C. Sometimes it's not called C, but it's all still C. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of new design ideas. Well, not new. There's a lot of new to to Objective C people design ideas in here, and I'm not even sure that they could switch to it entirely. Like, I'm pretty sure there are large chunks of um, the OSX frameworks that cannot be replicated in Swift. How so? Um, Just because you lack the message dispatch. Mm. There's a lot of, like, flexibility built into Objective-C, which is not in Swift. And I think it makes some things darn near impossible. Like... Uh, responder chains, some of the event handling and stuff. And I mean, it's not, you know, 
it's not surprising that some of these things haven't been figured out yet in these, you know, these are called functional languages um, because they're mostly academic languages. They don't, I mean, no one's built in an, an ecosystem the size of Apple's on something like this. You know, they really are going to be the first. I mean, I guess JavaScript would be the only thing close to this in scale. But JavaScript doesn't have the framework side. Right, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, if nothing else, I think it's a great way to get the community talking and to get people excited and to tamp down a lot of the... Apple is dead. Yeah, the obnoxiousness there. And certainly, you know, there are a lot of things... um, specifically things we do that Swift is immensely better for. Oh, God, yeah. No, I mean, don't, yeah, don't misunderstand. <laughs> I mean, there are a, there are a, like, we're not writing OS X. We're not writing the foundation. We don't need, you know, they may have to continue to write things in Objective-C for years. Um, we're going to have to write some of our stuff still. Well, no, we won't. Um, we won't be able to switch to Swift entirely. Right. We'd have to learn it. I mean, yeah, that's going to be a big roadblock. Yeah. Well, then, like, we're never going to be able to switch away from C. This is not possible. <laughs> no, there are things that just aren't, like, I don't think it is, I don't think anyone's arguing that Swift is going to be fast enough for, you know, low-level stuff. I don't think we're going to see... You know, the core audio guys switch to Swift. Well, and I wonder, as you were saying that, uh, um, one of the things I was working on last week or two weeks ago sprung to mind wherein it was very helpful to be able to read a hunk of memory that I knew was going to be there, but that I didn't have any sort of, you know, programmatic structure telling me it would be there. You know, I knew it was there because I knew of sort of other factors I could observe. Um, And the... Uh, way Swift works as far as I know because it's safe in that regard I don't know that you can do that can you like can you sort of read into an an arbitrary offset from a pointer and I don't I mean Swift has pointers I suppose but but I don't don't know they're not quite like that I'm not sure yeah I mean it's the kind of thing that could be done with I mean they could build a framework type thing for it if they needed to or we could um, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be great for 80% of the problems that need to be solved by people writing yeah. app, store, as, app, yes. app store apps, which is, you know, all Apple cares about. And especially on an iOS device where, you know, the idea that you would access some of the lower level stuff is a non-starter anyways, um, right. it becomes, I think, even more attractive Right. and where they can really build the framework specifically for the device and remove a lot of the sort of edge issues we've been talking about here Mm -hmm. and i mean you know with that comes a lot of stability like the idea of kind of arbitrarily knowing that you have some data in here that you want to read is you know that should be a red flag most of the time yeah yeah um so yeah i mean the less of that the better absolutely everywhere so i don't know i mean 
you know, what I'm most excited about in the short term is that everyone I know who's learned these sort of academic functional languages didn't do it to write software in. They did it because they said it makes them a better programmer. Um, and so I'm interested to see what happens when we have a language that we can actually start using. I mean, so I've, you know, this is like one of my to-dos on my list that's four years old now is learn Haskell, which I'm never going to do. And I knew I was never going to do it because there was, the payoffs were so long-term, mm-hmm. you know, it's like for me to, you know, for me to sit down and learn something new, Haskell would make me a better programmer because I would have to rethink the way that, you know, my entire paradigm, it's totally different. You know, Swift and Objective-C do things like at complete odds with each other. And so, you know, wrapping your head around another way to solve a problem always makes you better at solving problems. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, there's the way that OpenCL solves problems too. You know, there's, there's like, you know, there's lots of different ways to sort of pick, the, you know, to challenge yourself. And some of them I can like ship apps with. Yeah. Well, or even... And so Haskell to me was always like, yeah, I would love to do that. Maybe if somehow... You know, I um, find myself, you know, unemployed. <laughs> I will learn that. But in the meantime, my customers like me to do stuff. Right. And, and, even and if, so now we can learn it and, you know, use it. Even if we're Just not shipping it. an app with it, you know, we have some internal apps we use for things. Yeah. And, you know, any, the next time we need to spin up something, even if we're not planning to ship it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the fact that we can now, like, write things that are useful to us and potentially customers and become better, you know, all around developers at the same time, like that, that tips that calculus a lot. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited. You want to, you want to take a couple, like take a year off and rewrite Scopebox and Swift? Um, yeah. Uh, who wants to pre-purchase copies of Scopebox for? <laughs> Swift box. Yeah. <laughs> um, it operates faster than real time. That'd be good. That's actually a feature a lot of people want. Well, okay, yeah. I, <laughs> I was specifically thinking about live sources. That was the joke. Yeah. Oh, well. Someday. Someday, if y'all buy enough copies. Yeah. Um, anything else that you're super excited about in the world today? july 14th i don't know what's new um i i don't really know either i don't know yeah it's summertime things have slowed down on the internet yeah you got your sad voice on now i do yeah you had your sad voice on for a second there Uh, sorry yeah it's okay it's okay well, we can just move on to um, chatter. You've got your, your chatter prepped, right? Oh, I do, actually. Oh, okay. Damn it. I sent it to you before. Oh, I didn't. Which one was it? Okay, oh, so I'm yeah. going to talk about a... You know, we talked a little bit about writing code for the GPU, but I have a video here, which is a guy who's making his drawing using... So, that, you know, there's two big things you can do. On GPU, you can do like pixel math, 
Um, or you can do 3D moving around volumes, or you can do generic math. And so this guy is doing something in a shader, which is pixel math. And just starting from a blank canvas, and he draws like this trapper keeper image of a um, palm tree in silhouette in front of like a sunrise um, using nothing but math to like determine. So it's like it, you can think of it as one giant algorithm which decides what color for any one pixel, what color that pixel is going to be. So basically like if the pixel is inside, you know, the function, which is the shape of a palm tree, then it's black. Otherwise it's gradient. Um, and just sort of the process he uses to get to that. Um, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and so there's a video. Take a look. It's pretty awesome. Um, you got my chatter this week is not tech-related. It's just nerd science-related. Um, it is an article from a couple months ago in Outside Magazine on Anyakchak National Monument in Alaska. Uh, have you ever heard of this? No. It is the least visited national monument. In 2012, uh, they had 19 visitors. Um, it is somewhat difficult to get to um, in that you need to take like float planes and things, but it, it's this crazy site. So like 7,000 years ago, it was this massive volcano that blew up. And then um, the inside of the volcano became this like super lush, like paradise because it was the ground was heated from the leftover volcanic heat and it had this super rich soil um it was sort of first explored by you know westerners in the 1930s um and said it was just this amazing place and all the animals were tame and everything um but then it erupted again and became this sort of charred wasteland and that's what it is now with this um crazy like bright blue lake in the middle that then flows out in this river that eventually flows down to the ocean um and it just sounds pretty crazy and incredible uh, with massive bears and um yeah and you can you can go there if you're so inclined um and so yeah so it's like warm year-round the the soil is yeah and it's it's on the alaskan like peninsula the thing it's like not on an island but on the sort of edge of that thing that sticks out in the Bering Sea Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not super far north anyways and is heated by sort of ocean currents so I don't think that the climate ever gets super terrible okay but it's not like I'm I was picturing like a giant sea of white with like a oasis in the middle uh, I don't think so no It's more temperate than that. That's too bad. But like, yeah, when when the explorers in the 30s went there, this you know it was hot enough that you could like put your beans in the ground and cook them. And um, whoa, yeah. <laughs> so that's crazy. Yeah, it it sounds pretty incredible, and I'd never heard of it. Um, so interesting. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay. Uh, so mark your calendar, Colin. We're gonna do another one of these in. Um, January of, of 2015. Sounds good. Um, I'm free. I'm not free on the third or the tenth, but I can do the 16th. Does that work for me? Um, let's see. That's a Friday. Yeah, that looks okay. Okay, let's do that. Okay, we'll plan on it. No, we'll be back. Like we're totally, we're totally gonna get back into this. We're gonna do them every week. We'll give it a go. I'll put. I'm gonna put it on our calendars. 
Okay, let's do it. Next week. Okay. Okay. Talk, Talk to, to you, you next week. Next week. Bye. Bye.